the Slaughter and May podcast. Welcome to the June 2022 edition of our Tax News Highlights podcast. I am Zoe Andrews, PSL Counsel and Head of Tax Knowledge. And I'm Tanya Felling, Senior Professional Support Lawyer in the Tax Department. In this podcast, we will cover the General Court's decision in the UK CFC Finance Company Exemption State Aid case and the Supreme Court's decision in Zipfit. We will also discuss the recently announced energy profits levy and the result of the Centre for Policy Studies survey on the attractiveness of the UK as an investment location and provide an update on Pillar 1 and the future of tax cooperation. This podcast was recorded on the 14th of June 2022 and reflects the law and guidance on that date. Shall we take the cases first? Certainly. So, the General Court's much-anticipated decision in the state aid dispute around the financing company exemption in the UK CFC rules has come out and can be summarised by saying that the UK and ITV's case was comprehensively rejected. Of course, many taxpayers who initially relied on the exemption have since settled with HMRC on other grounds, but the appeal is still relevant to those hoping to get back the amounts recovered by HMRC as unlawful state aid. The General Court upheld the European Commission's assessment that the exemption constituted state aid. It considered that the Commission had been correct to use the CFC rules as the reference system and to consider them as a separate body of tax rules. It equally rejected criticisms of the Commission's reasoning in relation to the finding of an advantage and its justification. Overall, following other less successful court cases, this will have been a welcome decision for the Commission and may well encourage it to pursue other state aid investigations, in particular in relation to aid schemes, with renewed vigour. It is also interesting in that it appears to lend support to the notion that the principles of Cadbury Schweppes have had their day. Cadbury Schweppes concerned the compatibility of the UK CFC rules with the freedom of establishment and established broadly that CFC rules could be a justified restriction on the freedom of establishment on the ground of prevention of wholly artificial arrangements. In its rather swift dismissal of the UK's and ITV's arguments based on Cadbury Schweppes, the General Court, however, seemed to apply a different, lower standard based on the artificial diversion of profits. This apparent change in emphasis is unlikely to come as a complete surprise. And I think it may also reflect the evolution of the CJU's jurisprudence on abuse of rights. The judgment in the Danish Conduit cases states that a member state must refuse to grant the benefit of the provisions of EU law where they are relied upon not with a view to achieving the objectives of those provisions, but with the aim of benefiting from an advantage in EU law, although the conditions for benefiting from that advantage are fulfilled only formally. Read across to reliance on the freedom of establishment in a tax context, it would not seem that great a leap to conclude that the taxpayer should not be allowed to rely on freedom of establishment to help it artificially divert profits, and that consequently rules seeking to prevent such diversion should be compatible with this freedom, although it is clearly quite a way away from the Cadbury Schweppes principles. Zipvit is an important test case on the recoverability of input tax and considered the meaning of due or paid. There are many other similar cases stood behind it. It is estimated that the Supreme Court's judgment in favour of HMRC could save the Exchequer up to £1 billion. Zipfit ran a mail-order business, for which Royal Mail supplied Zipfit with postal services. The contract provided that Zipfit was required to pay the commercial price for the supply, plus such amount of VAT, if any, as was chargeable. Both parties, and HMRC, mistakenly thought the supplies made between 2006 and 2010 were exempt from VAT. 
that the CJEU subsequently held in the TNT post case that such a supply of individually negotiated mail services should in fact have been treated as standard rated for VAT. Crucially, HMRC is now out of time to recover the VAT from Royal Mail and Royal Mail is out of time to claim the plus VAT amount from Zipfit under the contract. Nevertheless, Zipfit sought to argue that it is entitled to deduct as input VAT either the VAT due in respect of these supplies or a VAT element deemed by law to be included in the price paid to Royal Mail for each supply. The CJU judgment in Zipfit in January 2022 ruled that VAT could not be regarded as having been included in the price paid by Zipfit to Royal Mail in return for the services and therefore had not been paid within the meaning of Article 168A of the VAT Directive. It further held that VAT could not be regarded as being due within the meaning of Article 168A since no request for payment of VAT had been sent to Zipfit by Royal Mail. The Supreme Court then applied the CJEU ruling, concluding that VAT is not recoverable by Zipfit because it was neither due nor paid. The decision clearly makes sense from a policy perspective, but from a technical perspective, it is far from satisfactory that whether an amount is due depends on whether or not its recovery is time-barred. It is also a shame that HMRC conceded early on that the reference in Article 168A to VAT due or paid means VAT due from or paid by the customer, rather than the supplier, as this interpretation is questionable having regard to the overall structure of the VAT system. What about the invoice issue? There was also a practical point of wider interest about whether, if VAT was due or paid, it could be recovered without a valid invoice that showed the VAT charged. The Upper Tribunal and Court of Appeal had held that the absence of an invoice meant that there was no right to deduct. But this was neither resolved by the CJU nor by the Supreme Court, because the determination that VAT was neither due nor paid meant that it was not necessary to address the invoice point. So uncertainty remains about this. Now let's look at the energy profits levy and investment allowance. We're now well used to having new taxes sprung on us in the budget, but pressure on the government to do something urgently about the cost of living crisis led to the announcement outside of the normal budget timetable of a new, temporary and targeted tax on certain oil and gas profits arising from 26th of May 2022. The energy profits levy will be charged at a rate of 25% on the profits of oil and gas companies from upstream activity in the UK and on the UK continental shelf, taking the total rate of tax on such profits to 65%. It will be charged as if it were an amount of corporation tax. Although it sounds prospective from the date of the announcement, it could impact transactions that were signed before 26th of May, particularly where they include contingent payment arrangements linked to future commodity prices or performance that will now see profits taxed at a higher rate. But there is some good news too, isn't there? Yes, to a degree the levy's impact has been balanced by the inclusion of a new allowance available from the point of expenditure, which is designed to incentivise investment. The investment allowance will entitle oil and gas companies to an 80% tax deduction on investment expenditure in the UK North Sea and will be available to reduce extraordinary profits subject to the new levy. So the more that a company invests, the less tax it will pay. Draft legislation in the form of a standalone bill is expected shortly. But from the documents published on the 26th of May, we are informed that if in future years oil and gas prices return to historically more normal levels, the government will phase out the levy. The bill will also include a sunset clause, removing the tax after the 31st of December 2025. 
what about the extraordinary profits currently being made by the electricity generation sector as a result of high gas prices? The new levy will not apply to the electricity generation sector. However, the government intends to reform the existing pricing regime to reflect the costs of electricity production rather than being pinned to gas prices as part of its review of electricity market arrangements in Great Britain. But this review will take a while. And in the meantime, the Chancellor announced that the government is evaluating the scale of the profits this industry is making and considering appropriate action. It has been said that the new levy could be a potential drag on investment, and it may indeed be one of the factors that companies take into account. But how attractive is the UK generally for inward investment? Let's have a brief look at the recently published results of a survey that looked at this question. Yes, everyone loves a good survey, and this one did catch my eye. The Centre for Policy Studies, which describes itself as Britain's leading centre-right think tank, has asked investors, why choose Britain? The report of the same title starts by noting that the past decade has been one of the most turbulent in Britain's long history, and that the only way out of this crisis is through growth fuelled by the private sector. So what do investors want? A general theme seems to be more joined up and consistent pro-business action and messaging from the government. Looking at corporation tax in particular, it is unsurprising that the planned increase in corporation tax rates to 25% from April 2023 did not find favour. The report notes that it will combine with the increase in dividend tax rates to result a highest integrated marginal tax rate on corporate profits of 54.5%, one of the highest in the OECD. Given that it seems unlikely that the government would reconsider either of these tax rises, or the energy profits levy, which would have been announced after the conclusion of the survey, what else could be done to enhance the UK's competitiveness? Enhancing tax deductions could be another key factor in encouraging investment in the UK. The report notes that even during the years of falling corporation tax rates, the marginal tax rate on new investments did not fall proportionately, as investment allowances were tightened. Now might then be a good time to reverse this trend. But this would have to be done in a predictable and sustainable fashion, Short-term or time-limited policies, such as the super deductions, which expires on the 31st of March 2023, are more likely to influence when, but not whether, an investment is made. The government's consideration of potential reforms to the UK's capital allowances regime, in respect of which comments can still be submitted until the 1st of July, is likely to be crucial in this respect. Something that will be interesting in this respect is whether, or to what extent, any such reforms will be used to encourage a transition to net zero. One option, which could however introduce a significant degree of complexity, would be to scale allowances by reference to the environmental impact of the investment. In relation to the energy profits levy and the associated proposal to introduce a new investment allowance, there had previously been some speculation that any such new tax might take account of investments by taxpayers in decarbonisation or alternative energy and renewables. We await the draft legislation but there's no indication as of yet that this will in fact be the case. Another option of bringing net zero into tax policy design could be to apply differential corporation tax rates, with taxpayers that have reached net zero paying less. This option was mooted in a recent policy paper by the Institute of Directors, which also calls on the government to develop a methodology for carbon footprint accounting. Our colleague, Victoria Hine, discusses this paper in more detail on the European Tax Blog. Shall we move on to look at the latest developments on Pillar 1 of international tax reform? Yes, let's do that. 
The big news is that the OECD has now recognized that it will not be possible to implement in 2023 the new taxing right for market jurisdictions over the residual profits of the largest and most profitable enterprises known as amount A of Pillar 1. This is because the technical details are taking longer to agree on than the ambitious implementation timetable expected. It was intended that a multilateral instrument to implement amount A would be signed by mid-2022 and implemented in 2023, but the aim is now to reach political agreement later this year and to make an MLI available in 2023, with practical implementation now pushed back to 2024. Model rules for implementing Pillar 1 are expected by the end of 2022. Notwithstanding the delay to the implementation timeline and the concerns about whether the US will be willing and able to implement the measures, the OECD continues to release consultations on each of the Pillar 1 amount A building blocks with very short response deadlines to keep the momentum going. Indeed, since our last podcast, consultations have opened and closed on the Exclusion for Regulated Financial Services, RFS, and on tax certainty. It is important to note that these consultations do not yet reflect a consensus that are being shared as early as possible to gather feedback to help progress discussions. The proposed RFS exclusion would treat the part of a multinational group that is in scope of amount A as a standalone business from the RFS part. It has not yet been agreed whether the exclusion should cover reinsurance and asset management but responses to the consultation propose they should because both industry groups are subject to extensive regulation and their activities are consistent with the principles of the exclusion. What can you tell us about tax certainty? Tax certainty is a key part of Pillar 1 to eliminate the risk of double taxation. It is important to have certainty upfront about how the rules will be applied to avoid disputes in the first place, as well as a mechanism to deal with any disputes which do arise. There have been two consultations on tax certainty one on the tax certainty framework for the amount A rules, and the other on tax certainty for issues related to amount A. Looking at the consultation on the tax certainty framework for amount A first, the framework is intended to eliminate the risk of uncoordinated compliance activity in potentially every jurisdiction where a group has revenues, and to avoid a complex and time-consuming process to eliminate the resulting double taxation. It includes three types of review. The first is a scope certainty review, which would provide an out-of-scope group with certainty that it is not in scope of the rules for amount A for a period, removing the risk of unilateral compliance actions. The second is an advanced certainty review, which would provide certainty over a group's methodology for applying specific aspects of the new rules that are specific to amount A, which will apply for a number of future periods. The third type of review is a comprehensive certainty review, which would provide an in-scope group with binding multilateral certainty over its application of all aspects of the new rules for a period that has ended, building on the outcomes of any advanced certainty applicable for the period. Responses to the consultation are varied and include a request for clarification of how the Pillar 1 rules and procedures interact with Pillar 2, the global minimum tax rules, where tax certainty is also critical. The narrow scope of the advanced review is criticized and it is requested that this review be expanded to cover more aspects of amount A methodologies, not just the sourcing rule. It has also been suggested that MNEs who withdraw a review request should bear the entire cost. The consultation on tax certainty for issues related to amount A, on the other hand, is about mandatory and binding dispute resolution for in-scope companies facing disputes on issues related to amount A. The process is intended to apply to transfer pricing and permanent establishment profit attribution disputes that competent authorities are unable to resolve through the Mutual Agreement Procedure, MAP, 
within two years of the presentation of the MAP case to the competent authorities. In earlier discussions, the concept of mandatory and binding resolution was not acceptable to developing countries. So how does the consultation document address their concerns? It is proposed that there be an elective binding dispute resolution mechanism available only for issues related to amount A for developing economies that meet certain criteria, including that they have no or low levels of MAP disputes. It's also clear from the consultation that a number of key points have not yet been agreed. These include the definition of related issues, whether the process can be initiated only in the taxpayer's country of residence, and whether it should only apply where the relevant jurisdictions have concluded a double tax treaty. From a business perspective, a robust dispute resolution mechanism applicable to a broad range of related issues would seem beneficial. A consultation response from an intergovernmental organisation of developing countries, on the other hand, expresses concerns around forum shopping and loss of sovereignty. It would seem that the OECD will have a rather difficult job reconciling such disparate views. In other international tax news, the OECD recently published a report on tax cooperation for the 21st century, which was prepared at the request of the German G7 presidency. Looking in particular at the suggestions in relation to corporate income tax, it is envisaged that progress made in agreeing substantive international tax rules, most notably through the Two Pillar Project, should be matched by a common approach as to their application. Countries should view the resolution of a tax issue that spans multiple jurisdictions as a joint effort of ensuring the correct and consistent application of the international tax rules, rather than as an adversarial process that I might have conceptualized as the zero-sum game of carving up the available tax pie. Tax authorities should aim to agree a common risk assessment framework, potentially including agreed materiality thresholds, and audit timeframes should be harmonized. Opportunities to streamline and remove duplicative filing requirements should be investigated. The report appears to suggest that, facilitated through advances in digitalisation, the corporate tax compliance journey of the future might then start with a single standardised filing of all required data that would be made available to the relevant tax authorities. Tax authorities would collaborate on the review of this data, the assessment of any risk that tax was underreported, and requests for further information. Audits would be coordinated or conducted jointly. And this collaboration would be coordinated through a central project management function, which, based on the existing ICAP framework, could be performed by one of the tax administrations. It is envisaged that such early collaboration would reduce the number of multilateral tax disputes. Where disputes arise, a binding resolution mechanism should be available. Where possible, tax authorities should aim to apply the rationale for the resolution of a particular dispute to future years and other disputes involving different taxpayers. As a starting point for discussion, the report clearly aims high, and I do think that, taken at face value, its vision for the future of corporate tax compliance would seem promising. At the same time, it is also clear that each individual recommendation would face formidable obstacles, for example, in terms of resourcing and ceding of sovereign powers. I shall not go further into these. A more fundamental issue might be that the report looks forward on the basis of the two-pillar project, even though its details have not even been fully agreed yet. It also appears to be premised on the paradigm of an open and rule-based global economy, and arguably, recent geopolitical developments could call that very paradigm into question. It would seem to me that, with it, the recommendations in this report, as well as the whole reform project, may stand or fall. But now, what do we have coming up?
There will be an ECOFIN meeting on the 17th of June, and although we understand it is back on the agenda, it seems unlikely that the EU directive for implementing Pillar 2 will be agreed at that meeting, given Poland's concerns that the global minimum tax rules should be tied into implementation of the Pillar 1 rules. The 30th of June is the closing date for comments on the technical consultation on draft regulations to continue beyond the 1st of January 2023, the exemption from the hybrid rules for certain hybrid regulatory capital instruments issued by banks. The 1st of July is the closing date for comments on the government's capital allowances reform policy paper. And at some point in July, we also expect draft legislation for inclusion in Finance Board 2023 to be published on what is known as L-Day for consultation over the summer. And that leaves me to thank you for listening. If you have any questions, please contact Zoe or me or your usual Slaughter and May contact. Further insights from the Slaughter and May Tax Department can be found on the European Tax Blog, www.europeantax.blog, and you can also follow us on Twitter, at Slaughter May Tax. For more information on this topic, or to hear our other podcasts, please visit www.slaughterandmay.com. You can also subscribe to the Slaughter and May podcast on iTunes or Google Play.